The title of the sermon this morning is The People's King. The People's King is the title of the sermon, if you're taking notes. And we continue through Matthew's Gospel. We just began it, so if you're just joining us, we are only in about two sermons deep. So this is a good time to jump in. This is a, we are in chapter 2. And one of the things we find in history, this isn't uh, only um, isolated to Matthew's time, it's also true of today, is that kings shape history, don't they? Kings form history. Uh, that is true today. The island of Maui originally was three separate kingdoms, three distinct kingdoms. It was The first kingdom would be Hana, which it makes sense. These were geographically delineated kingdoms. Hana, way out there over the mountain, that was one kingdom. The other kingdom would be a central kingdom here in central Maui, consisting of what we would know as Kahului and Wailuku. And then the third kingdom was in Lahaina. Lahaina. Now, one of the most famous, well-known kings, you've probably traveled this highway and didn't even know where the name came from, would be Pi'ilani the Great. Pi'ilani the Great. He was born in the 1500s, uh, and he lived, and he is known, and we recognize his role in Hanoa Pi'ilani Highway that you might travel if you go out to the west side or, or come in from the west side of Maui. You are on Hanoa Pi'ilani Highway in commemoration of Pi'ilani the Great. Now, why is he remembered? Because he was the first king of Maui to unite all of Maui under one line. And today, we still feel the effects. You see, even right around the street, Wakea Avenue is part of his birth story. Wakea Avenue. Not the avenue part, obviously. But kings shape history, and so it is true of our passage today. We've just begun Matthew's gospel. We saw chapter 1. Matthew went to a great level of detail to show that Jesus was not only the king, but he was the rightful claimant to the throne of David. He took great pains in that genealogy and in the birth narrative to show that Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus, that in every way, shape, and form that Jesus is the inheritor of the throne. Today's passage we'll see that Matthew's making the claim that not only is Jesus the rightful king, but he is the true king. He is the true king. And this truth is recognized by all in this passage. So let's pray and we'll get at it. Father in heaven, we want to desperately see the name of Jesus proclaimed and heard and received in every street and nook and cranny of this community, of this island. We long, as you taught us to pray, we long for your kingdom to come. We want your will to be done today, this moment on earth as it is in heaven. And so, Father, would you grant it this morning as your word is preached? Would you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive? And may you shape us, form us, and mold us in accordance with your word. And Lord, I do want to lift up our sister church, Valley Isle Fellowship, as now they are in a season of transition, as uh, we praise you for the faithful ministry of Steve Conashiro. We praise you for his many years of committed gospel work, 
And Lord, we ask that you would bless him. And now we also lift up the church. We pray, Father, as they seek a new pastor, Lord, would you bless their search? Would you give them a faithful and godly shepherd to lead and advance the work in Wailuku? And so would you be with our brothers and sisters, keep them united. Satan loves to pounce and transition. So, Lord, would you strengthen them and be their shield and fortress? And, Lord, we pray not only for them, but for every church, every place where your gospel is proclaimed in these islands. Would you do a mighty work in this time? We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. All right, here's the big idea for today's passage. Messiah's birth exposes pretenders and elicits pagan praise. That's your big idea. Uh, if we had to encapsulate this, Messiah's birth exposes pretenders and elicits pagan praise. Number one, the mad king. Point number one, the mad king. This narrative opens, and do you notice how it opens in verse 1? I hope you keep your Bibles on or open, right? Turn them on, keep them open, keep it in the passage so you can kind of reference down real fast, all right? Keep them unlocked or whatever you got to do, right? But, but keep them on and check it out. Notice how the passage opens here in chapter 2. Look, I'm in chapter 1 over here. See, now chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, that's how he starts. He skips over all the birth story. We don't get uh, the, the decree of the emperor. We don't get the travel back to Bethlehem. We don't get, uh, there's no room for them in the end. Matthew just skips it all. He just goes over all of it. It's, it goes straight from conception with Joseph to now he's born, all right? We just get all that. Luke includes all of those details, but Matthew totally skips over it. Why? Because Matthew's making a point. He's driving us home. Maybe he knows Luke. Maybe they wrote an email or not an email, a snail mail, a pigeon or something. Hey, you cover the birth story. I'm going to cover this, right? Ultimately, Matthew is aiming at a point, and so he skips all of these details. And so there's a time warp, isn't there? Between chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's a time warp. It goes ahead. It skips ahead at least 10 months maybe as much as two years. And so Jesus now in this passage is probably one to two years old. And you'll see why as we get into Matthew. But he's a toddler. He's toddler Jesus. He's the only perfect toddler to ever live. Amen? You could just imagine Mary would be so like, why isn't he doing what toddlers do? He's listening to me. Okay, right? And you know she got set up on the first one, right? The first one was perfect. She's like, this parent thing's all right. And then she had more children, and they were all sinners. Oh, that's the way it goes, right? The first one's always a setup. Uh, they're, they're good, and then you just have more, and it just it gets better, right? <laughs> it gets better. Um, but Jesus is a toddler at this time, and Matthew, he skips over all that, and he introduces us immediately to another king. And the days of Herod, the king. Wait a minute. Who's the king? Is Jesus the king? Or is Herod the king? And so Matthew's setting up tension in his narrative. He's, he's setting up a contender, or we should say rather a pretender to the throne, this false king, Herod. He's doing this intentionally. He's showing us in chapter 1 all this lineage of Jesus, all the line of Joseph adopting Jesus, giving him the rightful claim to the throne, the true Messiah, the Lord's anointed. And now chapter 2, the king Herod, Herod the Great. 
Now, it's helpful if we know a little bit about the Herods. The reason is because there's at least three Herods mentioned in the life of Jesus that are important to him, three different Herods. And so if you don't know which Herod you're dealing with, it can be kind of confusing. This Herod is Herod the Great, Herod the Great. Now, you say, why would he name all of his children? Why are all these people named Herod? Why, why did he do that? Well, we have a boxer who had five sons. You know who this boxer is? Five sons, he named them all George. George Foreman, you guys know, the Foreman Grill. He named all of his sons George. George Jr., George III, George IV, George V, right? You say, that's kind of confusing. It can be kind of confusing. And so they would know them by their titles or their nicknames or their monikers. You had Herod the Great. This is this Herod. You had Herod Archelaus, and then Herod Antipas, and Herod Antipater. And you had all these different ones, and they're John the Baptist is dealing with a different Herod. The life of Jesus is under a different Herod, you see. And so it can get confusing if you don't know. This first Herod, Herod the Great, dies shortly after the events in chapter 2. Around 4 B.C. he dies. History, this is what I love about the Gospels, is it sets, this isn't fairy tale religion, right? We're not just these things are kind of, oh, they're different. This happened in history and time and space. You can read in the Encyclopedia Britannica about the Herods and the Hasmonean dynasty and Rome. These things actually occurred. And what we find from Matthew's depiction is it is every bit as accurate as what we know Herod the Great was towards the end of his reign. He was paranoid. He was a madman. One of the Roman emperors, Augustus, said of Herod that it would be better to be his pig than to be his son. Because he would go on to murder several of his sons. Because he thought they were a threat to his reign. Before his death, just to give you an, uh, an example, before he died, he ordered all of the notable men and the towns of Israel to be brought out. He kept them in prison in one place, and he ordered, at the word of my death, these men are to be slaughtered so that there would be weeping in Israel. He wanted people to mourn at his death, even if they weren't tears for him. This is that Herod. Doesn't sound like a great person, does he? Thankfully, those orders were not carried out. That should also show you something about those who were under his reign. They did not respect his authority, and after he died, they did not carry out the executions. But nonetheless, this is the type of person, this is the frame of mind, this is the Herod the Magi would have met when they made it to Jerusalem. In his early years, this Herod wasn't always like that. In his early years, he was a skilled builder. He expanded the temple, the second temple, to be larger than Solomon's temple was. You would think, or he, he thought, the Jews should love me for this. Do you think they loved him for that? Not even close. Not even close. Why is that? They rejected him in part because he was a pretender to the throne. He was also, his lineage was mixed. He was part Edomite. Now, why am I giving you this history? Because it's going to be very important to what the Magi do and why Herod is so troubled. He is part Edomite. Now, wait a minute. You're thinking, why do I care? What's an Edomite? Anybody know what an Edomite is? The descendant of Esau. Jacob and Esau. Remember, we're back in Genesis now. Jacob steals the birthright from Esau. He should have always had the birthright. And all this history goes on, and bottom line is Esau and his descendants were called Edomites, never to have the throne in Israel. And yet here an Edomite sits 
on the throne, a pretender placed there by the Romans. No wonder why they reject him. He was a false king. He was a puppet king placed by the Roman oppression. And he was pejoratively referred to, at least by the people, as the king of the Jews. The king of the Jews. The Jews would respond when they heard this from those around with something to the effect of, we've heard this phrase, not my king. Not my king. And so Matthew introduces this false king here into the story. Why? Because the birth of Jesus exposes false kings and pretenders to the throne. And Herod knew it. And he knew it. This is why it says in verse 3 that when he heard of the birth of the king of the Jews, it says he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. He was troubled. Now, you can hear that sting there, can't you, from the Magi? Where is he who was born king of the Jews? Herod was appointed a false king. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? You can feel that sting, and it says Herod was troubled. Now, it's worth asking. Let me ask you a question. This is, this is I'm not going to answer this question for you, by the way, yet. I'm going to ask you a question, a theological question. Was Herod correct to feel threatened by the birth of Jesus? Think about it. Was he correct to feel threatened by the birth of Jesus? Now you're thinking about it. You say, wait a minute, because normally we tend to conceive of the kingdom of Jesus as a spiritual reign. Jesus came to die for the forgiveness of sins, not to set up and establish a physical kingdom, but rather a spiritual reign that would be accomplished as his people voluntarily repent of their sins and place their faith in him, which this reality would never be a threat to Herod's kingdom because he would be dead long after it was established, you see. So was he correct or did he just misunderstand what Jesus was here to do. It's a question for you. It's a question for me. Or there's a second corollary question. Are we missing something? Was Herod correct to be threatened by the birth of the king of the Jews? Are we missing something about the nature of the kingdom that Jesus came to establish? You say, is it spiritual? Yes, it is, but is it more? Does it have more implications than just the spiritual? Was he correct? I'm going to leave that to you. I'm going to let you stew on that because it is intrinsically tied to what Matthew's gospel is all about and what Matthew concludes at the very end. Think about the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. It's intrinsically tied to that question, was Herod correct or are we missing something? I'll let you sit on that for a while as we work through Matthew's gospel. But I do want to take some time to do some really just nitty-gritty application. The birth of Jesus exposes pretenders to the throne. Beloved, this is still true for us. Do you know Jesus' presence exposes pretenders to the throne? Namely, let me ask you this, who is ruling your life? Who is on the throne of your life? This, I love how when our catechism questions and sermon just line up, right? What is sin? Anybody? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God and the world he created. Not being or doing what he requires in his law. 
That is the definition of me being my own king. I'm going to reject God. I'm going to ignore God and the world he created. And I'm not going to be or do what he requires in his law. That is the essence of sin. That is the essence of idolatry. And that is what it means to be king in your life. That is what sin is at its core. When I hear God's word, it's that little voice that you say, I know I shouldn't do this. I know I shouldn't say this. I know I shouldn't feel this. But I'm not going to fight this. Rejecting or ignoring. How does that play out in your life? This question, this text, beckons your soul, who is king? Does the birth of Jesus expose a pretender on the throne of your heart? Maybe. Maybe. And if you're like Herod, Herod held it together for a long time in his life. He held it together for decades, but eventually it all fell apart towards the end. Maybe you might be the pretender, and you might say, I got this. I'm going to hold it together for a little while. I can control this, but it will all fall apart at the end. It will. So we have a question. Who is the king on the throne of your heart? It's the first one, the mad king. Number two, the miraculous star, the miraculous star, verse 2, 7, 9, 10. We see this. Check this out in verse 2, saying, They came from the east uh, to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 7, Herod summons them secretly, ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Interesting. He's trying to get a timing and this is why he's going to go and kill children two years old and younger. He's trying to get the timing down. What time did this happen? Verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, here it is, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. In verse 10, when they saw the star, man, there's so many... Uh, there's so much joy in this passage right here. It's like so much joy. It's just all over the verbs, the nouns, the, the, the all of it's just joy. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. There's just so much joy when they saw, and it finally came to the king that they had been seeking. And so we have this miraculous star, and a lot of questions have been asked. What is a star? Was it a star? It was moving, a comet, a supernova, an asteroid? Was it a planetary movement of celestial bodies? Uh, was it um, an angel? Maybe it was an angel. Was it an angel, an actual angel? Was it some other supernatural thing? What was the star? I've seen documentaries, fascinating ones on the Bethlehem star. Those are, those are definitely intriguing. Perhaps they may be helpful for some. But ultimately, we have to go with the scriptures as we don't know. It doesn't tell us, the scriptures don't tell us everything we want to know. They don't tell us everything about the star we might like to know, which that's a clue for us in, isn't it? If Matthew doesn't tell us everything we want to know about the star, maybe that's because the star is not the main point. The star is serving the main point. And what is the main point that Matthew wants us to see? He doesn't want us looking at the stars or the heavens. He wants us to say, like Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his, his handiwork. 
Amen. Praise God. To him be all honor and worship and praise. That's the point of Matthew. He's wanting us to see that at every point of major redemptive movement, whether it be at at the base of Sinai, there's thunder and lightning and smoke and, and all kind of earthquake and trumpet blasts, there's a movement and the celestial bodies respond. Here at the birth of the Creator, the The creation responds to the presence of the Creator. At His death, the sun goes dark and creation again responds to its Creator. And we're going to see this throughout the life of Jesus over and over again, whether it be the stars or people or demons or oceans or donkeys, they all respond to the arrival of the King and the Creator of Jesus. And they all have this universal testimony, praise Him. Praise Him. That's the point of the star. And so when you, when you look at these things, when you watch these things, they may be fascinating, but just remember they're not the main point. They're not the main point. And so we have this miraculous star. The King has come. The King has come. Number three, the Magi. The Magi. We're walking through this passage as we look at the characters and how they play a part in Matthew's overall narrative. And now we come to the Magi, verse 1 and 2. Check that out. After, the, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, here it says, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And then we saw verse 9 and 10. They they eventually find him. They find him in Bethlehem. This word underneath wise men is a word magi. It's where we get our English word magic. Magic. Anybody ever been to Warren and Annabelle's magic show on the west side? It's awesome. It's funny. See? You guys laugh at me. It's worth going to see. You should go check it out. It's good stuff. They do magic tricks. They're magi, right? Uh, In a sense. Magi. But these weren't simply magicians. The Bible is full of magi. The first time we are introduced to magi, you will see them if you're doing our five-year reading plan in the book of Exodus. You remember Moses goes to Pharaoh, let my people go, and the first plagues, the first few plagues, Pharaoh has wise men, magi on the court, and they are replicating some of the miracles before Yahweh just pulls away from them total domination. Another time we see the Magi significantly is in the book of, we just went through it, Daniel. The book of Daniel. You remember Daniel? The the exile, they get conquered by Babylon, and they take the cream of the crop, the youth from Israel, into Babylon for training. So Daniel went to MIT. He was Magi in training, and he became the top of the class, right? He excelled all the wise men, And it says Daniel was the the wisest of the wise in Daniel chapter 2 because God gave him wisdom. So in each of these cases, the Magi are seen as contenders, opposition to the true God. They're working for the other guy. And now here we have the Magi. They come not as contenders, as worshipers, as worshipers, these pagan Magi, the birth of the king elicits their praise and their worship. Do you realize how hopeful this is? It's incredibly hopeful for you. 
It doesn't matter how many generations of your people or of your family or of wherever you came from or even of how many decades of your own life. It doesn't matter how many decades your people, your family, or you have opposed God. If you turn today, he will receive your praise. He will come to you. He will ransom you and he will make you his own. You won't be those people, you'll be my people says the Lord. It's a picture here. It's a very hopeful picture. We see these magi paraded across many preschool programs, children's programs across the country. How many were there? Anybody know? Trick question. How many of you guys all started to say, oh, <laughs> three? Was there three? Does the Bible say there is three? What's it say here? doesn't say doesn't say. So why do we think there's three? Because of gifts. Most people think there's three because of gifts. Would you show up to the birth of a king without a gift? <laughs> right? I hope not, right? Culturally not, but that's where it comes from. So was it three? It might have been three. It could have been six. It could have been 12. It was likely a very large caravan. Now, were these we call them, we hear three kings. We three kings of Orient, right? Or were they kings? It doesn't say again. It says they were magi. They were wise men. They may have been serving a royal class from their governor. They were probably royal representatives, much like Daniel would have been. Daniel was not the emperor of Babylon. He was not the king of Persia, but he was very high up there. Second in command at one point, right? He was very high up there. These were probably very high-ranking foreign officials sent on behalf of a king to pay homage to the king of the Jews. So we call them magi. They were more likely properly astrologers who served in the court of a foreign power. Probably, we don't know this for sure, but uh, if I had to be a, a gambling man, which I'm not, but if I had to be one, I would put my bets on Persia. I put my bets on Persia because one, that's the origin of, uh, of a of where we get our, uh, what's the zodiac and all that kind of stuff, looking at the stars, your sign, all that stuff, that all finds its roots in Persia, in the Persians. They were astrologers. Uh, and so they come from the east, and they are seeking, they say, his star that was rising. And they allude directly to numbers. This is Old Testament now. They, they make an allusion. We saw his star rising. This is actually very parallel to Numbers 24, 17 from another pagan prophet, this isn't a Jewish prophet. This is a pagan prophet. Balaam, here's what he says, Numbers 24, 17. He's predicting they, this guy was hired to curse Israel, and he just keeps blessing them. And here's what he says, uh, Numbers 24, 17. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall rise or come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And these guys come up and they say, we saw the star rising, and we have come to worship him who was born, there's a scepter, king of the Jews. Now they know their context back then. They knew their Bibles back then. Undoubtedly, this would have caused Herod another reason to have great angst, not just because the birth of the king who would challenge his throne, but because the prophecy of number 24, it says this king will dispossess the Edomites. The very next verse. The descendants of Esau will be dispossessed 
all this is operative in the background, and we're just reading past it like, oh, they still all start rising, right, right? I'm going to go on. But this is all happening in the backdrop, and Herod's hearing this like, oh, I know what this means for me. And here Herod, an Edomite, has no claim to the throne, and now the true king has arrived. Now, wait a minute. We just, I just always scratch my head. They just referred to Scripture made an allusion to Scripture. They know somehow to look in the stars for a king of Israel and that something's happening. Why are these pagans doing that? Why do they care about what's happening in Israel when they live in a foreign country? Why? Where would they have heard about the Scriptures? They don't have a library like we have or Internet. They just Google, I wonder what's going on in Israel right now. That doesn't happen back then. Why are they paying attention? Where did I say they came from? Persia, probably. Another option would be Babylon. Same result. Who served as a lead magi in both of those kingdoms? Daniel. Where did Daniel die? Do you remember what kingdom was there when Daniel died? Persia. He died in the capital city of Persia. Undoubtedly, they would have recruited Daniel, this aged wise man. Can you teach our junior <laughs> magi in training? You're so wise and smart, and your counsel has been so solid. Can you teach a seminar for us? Undoubtedly, these things happen. They would pass on wisdom to those up and coming. They would share resources and knowledge. How did you get to be so wise, Daniel? And Daniel said, the God of Israel is a revealer of mysteries, and they want to teach us about this God. What are his, here's the scriptures. And they would have gone on and on and trained. And so what's the end result? Centuries later, these pagans are looking, waiting, watching for the one that the God of Israel said would come. And sure enough, here they are. God truly moves in mysterious ways, beloved. Don't ever think that just because you can't see God working, maybe even in your lifetime, that it doesn't mean he isn't working. He often works over a lifetime. So we see the Magi come in search of the true king. And in number four, final number four, the majesty of a baby. We see the majesty of a baby in verse 11 and 12. This rounds out our narrative for today. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Just imagine, they, this is a long journey for them. They've been searching, searching, waiting, wondering, where do I go? I'm just going to follow the star. And when they finally see where it lands, they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Now remember... They show up in Jerusalem. They don't know they're supposed to go to Bethlehem, right? They show up in Jerusalem. Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? They're asking Herod this. Herod's supposed to kind of know that, right? He's supposed to be like, oh, uh, the king of the Jews is supposed to be... I'll be right back. I got to run to the bathroom real fast. I'll, I'll be right here. Hold on. We'll talk about this later. Grab, gathers the scribes and the priests. Where's the king supposed to be born? Bethlehem. He is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Go down there, find him, so we can come and worship him, right? They get that from Micah 5. 
That reference comes from Micah chapter 5. This is what the scribes look to to find, oh, he's supposed to be born in the city of David in Bethlehem. Now, this is fascinating. Micah's prophecy, basically, he foresaw that a shepherd king would arise in Israel that would turn the tables. Micah prophesied before Assyria conquered Israel and before Babylon and before Persia, and he foresaw a day when the tables would be turned in Israel's favor. Assyria came and conquered Israel, and it was like they became their shepherd, and Micah sees a day that actually this king will rise, and he'll shepherd Assyria, and there will be peace. He sees a day when not nations, foreign powers won't take money and treasure from Israel and subjugate them and oppress them, but rather foreign treasures will flow to Israel in homage to this shepherd king. The tables would be flipped. Did you hear that? Foreign treasures would flow to Israel. What did they bring? Treasures of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Very costly. And this says, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Micah chapter 5. It's not just about location. It's also about worship and who is worshiping him. Now Matthew, he finds and he looks at his people at this time, Israel, and they are in a similar place. They are under foreign occupation, Roman oppression, and they are again tempted to place their faith and their hope in the schemes of men and in the appearance of power. And Matthew says through this prophecy in Micah 5, the shepherd king has arrived. Hear the rest of Micah's prophecy, Micah 4. In five, Micah chapter 5, verse 4 and 5, here's what it says of the king. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty and the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So Matthew says, Micah 5, that king's here, and nothing will ever be the same. And they offer him, in fulfillment of Isaiah 60 and Micah 5, gifts of gold, denoting his royalty, frankincense, denoting his role as as priest, and myrrh, which was used for embalming, foreshadowing his death on the cross. And there's an irony in the narrative here. There's an irony, a twist. What's the irony? Well, it says Herod was troubled, Do you remember what else it said? And all Jerusalem with him. And all Jerusalem with him. The people were all troubled as well. Bethlehem was a five-mile journey. Was it just five miles from Jerusalem? Did anybody go with these pagan philosophers and astrologers to find Jesus? Any people in Israel go? You would think, right? Oh, the king's here? They're going to Bethlehem? I'm, I'm going to go too. I'm going to go. I'm going to Bethlehem. Let's go, babe. We're going to Bethlehem. They go alone. You see the irony? These pagan worshipers, at great cost to themselves, at great danger, and great sacrifice of time and energy and expense, travel very far in search to worship the king. And yet his own people, who should have been waiting for him, who should have been eager, they don't even lift a finger. They don't go anywhere. They're troubled, actually. 
This is what John refers to when he says, Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. So Matthew presents this ironic twist as an indictment of the people of Israel, but it's also an indicator on the nature of his kingdom. This would be a kingdom that would welcome all peoples, all nations, all languages. Jesus would be a king for all the ends of the earth. And so I just want to close with two points of application to prod your thinking, and we will move on to the Lord's Supper. Here's your first point. First, note that irony. How about us? Could Matthew write the same thing of us and find the irony to hold true? How much can we be said to sacrifice to be with Jesus? Do you spend daily time with him? These, these magi would have traveled great distances in time to worship this king. And this king offers us his very presence every day. Whether it be in the morning, noon, night. Do you sacrifice time, energy, maybe being willing to wake up early or take time in the middle of your day or to stay up a little bit late to spend time with your king? Or do we travel at great cost and time to ourselves? Or do we, do we give up fun on the weekends to, to be with the body of Christ and plan for it? I'm always so encouraged at uh, those who come and visit us who are, are tourists here, joining us from other places. And, and you take time out of your vacation, your very costly vacation, to worship with the people of God. And, and I've often heard from many who said, man, the highlight of my vacation wasn't the beaches. It was being with God's people in another place. I've heard that many times. I'm often encouraged by that. But I have to ask us, is that an indictment of us sometimes, or watching online, is that, can that be an indictment of us that sometimes we, we don't even want to give up our good, fun, weekend activities to be with the people of God? Is church merely something we do when we don't have anything else better to do? You see, could this irony hold true for us? I'll let that sit with you for now. Let's move to the Magi. They study the star. These guys spent their whole lives looking at constellations and planets and studying what that might mean and the impact the lunar cycle had on the planet. These guys were experts in their field and their final, final expertise, all their energies and studies led them to the ultimate end, to worship Jesus. Let me ask you this. What is the point of all your studies we have some very educated and successful people here. Very educated and successful people watching online, perhaps. What is the ultimate end of all your studies in whatever field you are in, whatever your expertise you are in, whether you're an engineer or a mechanic or whatever it is, the ultimate aim of all knowledge is to lead you to seek, to search, and to find Jesus and to worship him. He is the crowning jewel that your heart longs to know, and you may not even realize it. This is the ultimate aim, and he offers himself to you this morning, or whenever you watch this, because I know some people watch it later, this evening, he offers himself to you to worship. It was said of those in ancient times, and what I mean by ancient times is the early history of the church and the middle, medieval ages and the enlightenment period, 
You know the highest discipline for them was? The highest field of study? It wasn't the stars, astrology. It wasn't the sciences. It wasn't the maths. They saw the highest field of study was theology. To know God who created all of these things. To know him and to know his face and to seek him. And I pray that as you search, as you study, as you want to know things, that's, a, that's not a bad thing. God says, come, let us reason, but use your mind and let it seek, search, and find Jesus as the end. This scene in Matthew 2 ultimately harkens back to one more place, at least one more place in the Old Testament. You remember Solomon? King Solomon, all of his glory, wealth, might, riches, honor. He had a foreign dignitary come to see him too. You remember? The Queen of Sheba. And she brought him gifts of gold and frankincense and costly spices. Matthew chapter 12, same book, a few chapters later. We'll get there like next year. (laughs) Matthew 12. Jesus says the queen of Sheba will rise up in judgment on this generation. And he says, something greater than Solomon is here. And truly it was. Jesus has arrived. And so it is that today we still find it to be true that wise men still seek him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that You offer yourself to us. You are not hiding. You are in plain sight, and you invite all to faith and repentance and to find life in worshiping you. So, Father, may we be called and may we hear the call of Matthew to repent from being the king of our own lives. May we hear the call that this kingdom is for all peoples and that you readily receive praise of those who turn and search for you. And Father, may we hear the call of Matthew to be like the Magi, willing to forsake all, great cost, time, and expense to worship the King. Would you do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.